Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. OrthoLaser, orthopedic laser centers powered by MLS M8 laser technology is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www.ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, it's your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Scott Sigmund here to host another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We have a pretty amazing guest today. I'm actually really looking forward to this. I think my kids are too, because it's going to be some really interesting stories about uh, viruses, pandemics, and uh, and sort of the military. So it's a really cool topic. So we've got Michael Langworthy, who's the chairman of orthopedic surgery at South Coast Health, chief science officer at Menco Labs. In his former life, he is the officer in charge of Combined Special Operations Task Force in Afghanistan. So... Uh, I'm going to read through the through this, Mike. I mean, you really you really are you're you're a badass, man. You've been doing you've got a pretty amazing history here. Some of the stuff you've done. So, so you were a Navy pilot, actual Navy pilot, a long time ago. Yeah, universe far, far away. Yeah, but that's fantastic. Then you became a a flight surgeon. Uh, actually, I went straight into orthopedics after that. Fantastic. So, and then tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Bahrain. Yeah, it was, it's been entertaining. Yeah, you've been around the world. So we're going to go we're going to go with Langworthy here because I know that's how you like to call yourself. It's sort of a classic military, you know, call sign. So, uh, I I will say this, the Navy runs real deep in my family. My first cousin's a, a Naval Academy graduate. I'll never forget, I think it was in 1978, we were there at the academy and when they all throw their hats up at the end, it was just such an amazing experience and I've got a a nephew and a niece who also have been uh, uh Navy as well. So it runs strong in our family. So so, man, before we get started, because I, I got, I mean, I'm not even sure where to go with you. I got so many great ideas here about what we want to talk about today, but just tell us what's happening locally. What's going on? Family, with with practice. I mean, how are you doing coming out of this pandemic? Well, we, we've split the family up right now. So uh, they're over in Michigan, actually, strangely enough, but I've got a house over there on a lake and they're just chilling. So I'm the one exposed. So I, I'm sticking around Massachusetts just till, this, till we get through this thing. Have you guys uh, any ideas to what you do with patients, how many patients you see and that sort of stuff? 
we're we went with the telehealth thing. I saw your what was it the the other side the interview yep. and we yeah. hit. Uh, so our practice is a little bit different. I am hospital based with South Coast Health Systems. So we we did end up furloughing. It sounds like you folks furloughed quite a few folks also. We went with a lot of telehealth. I'm doing, I I do some complex trauma. So I went from 18, 20 cases a week down to uh, about three cases a week. So it's, it's been, um, you know, pretty devastating to a, uh, to a community health-based system. Yeah. I mean, there's rumors from Governor Baker that we may be first out with healthcare workers and he's got like May 18th, but there's a rumor that it may be a week earlier for elective surgeries. So, So that's good news. I actually live five miles from New Hampshire. So I was able to get uh, privileges up in New Hampshire. New Hampshire governor never put a moratorium on elective surgery. Yeah, they closed down voluntarily. And uh, then now with things not being so bad in New Hampshire, they've decided to open. So uh, I was able to do six cases last week, all sort of time sensitive ACLs, rotator cuffs, things like that, which we want to get, you know, our patients up and going. So it was, it was awesome. I mean, literally I had six reps, we had eight employees at the surgery center and four lives that were able to start the healing process. It just was like a great moment for everybody to be a part and start moving out and marching out. So all good stuff. So let's, uh, so you're going to be our last episode of, of pandemic focused, uh, you know, uh, talk here. And I think that you've got some really tremendous history. I think, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's go back. Where, now you tell us, where do you want to start? Cause you've got some amazing stories about animal research so it's it's funny how history repeats itself. So if you if if you've uh, read about the the nineteen eighteen flu, uh, it was kind of interesting because that flu did not affect China very much. So it caused millions of deaths around the world except China. And the thing is, it actually the the that flu actually started a weak version of it started in nineteen fifteen in China. So they were already had herd immunity. And then the war started back to your, your military medicine aspect. You had World War One going on. So you had young, healthy individuals in the trenches being exposed to stress, being exposed to chemical warfare. And then the virus had a had a, uh, a big shift. And that's when it became deadly. And um, the thing then went around the world. But the the uh, country of China had been already immunized. They'd had a natural vaccination from three years earlier. So these things can uh, float around, shift around. If we go ahead uh, to about, about 20 years ago, I was with a, uh, this, the Navy SEALs had decided that they wanted to look at improvised explosive devices. Now, there wasn't a lot. Uh, nobody was interested in it at that point. So the, the SEALs arranged to use a um, facility called Sadaheeb in, in Thailand. And we went over and um, we were doing uh, basically wound research. We wanted to see what the localized uh, inflammatory response was to a, a shock wave and, and the ballistics of, of small asymmetric metal pieces, but also see what the systemic inflammatory response was. So the first time we we're going to do this, um, we I've sent some, some uh, folks up to the market in Bangkok and they brought down uh, 20 piglets. And the piglets were, were filthy. And typically at these military operations, certainly the joint ones, the, the, the Thai brass admirals and generals would come in and kind of look over things. And I'd made a decision like we need to we need to clean the pigs up because they were they were filthy. And just like Charlotte's Web, uh, I asked some of the, the seals to to scrub the pigs down and uh, they used the, the water from the water cooler and the pigs got hypothermic. I uh, couldn't get lines in the ear. So we ended up using ketamine. 
to knock the pigs down. And the pigs, uh, it's a, it's an LSD analog. So they, they tripped out. And then um, I sort of. So, so Charlotte, Charlotte and the piglets are tripping out on LSD, basically. But basically in Thailand. With a, with <laughs> in Thailand with Navy SEALs. So uh, <laughs> at this point, you used morphine and atropine to, to knock them down. And we did the experiments. And um, that night, the, uh, the, the, there were a Thai SEAL component. And uh, those individuals would come out and they said, well, I heard some some uh, translating going on. I go, what's going on? They go, they want to eat the pigs. I go, they, they can't eat those pigs. They're loaded with Wait, pigs. so wait. So hold on a second. So you're experimenting on pigs, right? You knock them out. You figure we're, this we're, whole we're thing. Studying them. Yes. We're, yes. Yeah. You're, studying, you're studying Charlotte and the piglets and you're all done. You figure out your research is good. And now the general wants to eat the pigs. The, the Thai seals want to eat the pigs. Oh, the Thai seals want to eat the pigs. Okay. Yeah, the, the Thai seals that are they're loaded out with uh, uh, machine gun weaponry that, with live ammo, and um, so I guess you're going to give them the pigs. Well, they they, <laughs> they they are going to eat the pigs despite me telling them not. To. Exactly. So, I mean, we we got to get off the island when this thing goes down. So our our team left and had a good night's sleep. Come back the next morning, and sure enough, the the ties had been. Uh, they were eating, ingesting this meat with ketamine in it, and they were hallucinating and things like that. So they had like it's a stoner pig party. Oh, it was. So at that point, I decide I'm no longer uh, going to leave the, the pigs alone. We decide to create a uh, like a crematorium, and on TV it looks like it's 10 minutes for something to burn up. It took 19 hours to subsequently burn those those the rest of the pigs up. And uh, we had to post a watch and things like that. So that was my first foray into um, basically biological research in a in a foreign country. Where we've continued to do that. Now we have a civilian team. Um, two years ago, we took a team down to Cuba. Last summer, we went to to um, uh, Greenland to do some biological research. And your friend uh, Stan Dyser actually went up and was the photographer on that expedition. So from those techniques that we developed in um, in Thailand, we've continued to do that. But I, I went back uh, 2002. They had a coronavirus uh, called SARS that was getting ready to pick up. And then um, uh, we did some work in the, the wet markets where these, these wet markets are all over Vietnam, China, Indonesia. In fact, in Africa also. So about 2 billion people in the world actually will derive some protein from these wet markets. So talk to me about the wet markets, because we hear all about this. I mean, you know, how bad is it? I mean, how, what's the contamination? What's the cross stuff going on? So so this goes back uh, to traditional Chinese medicine. So there's a component of that. But it also goes back to the 1949 revolution in China, where there was massive starvation. So the, the Chinese government actually said, hey, uh, to the farmers, cultivate bats, cultivate rats as alternative sources of protein. So that's how this, this diet sort of developed. Now, I, I saw um, Dr. Fauci had got on and said they need to shut the wet markets down. The issue is uh, that the uh, Chinese government has worked in conjunction with the World Health Organization and has had uh, traditional Chinese medicine uh, declared as a legitimate type medicine. So it's a $75 billion a year industry, not, not easy to shut down. And like I said, you've got about 2 billion people around the world that use this as a fresh source of protein. So it's it's a much, much harder uh, project to to get this shut down. It really is. So did you have you seen the movie Contagion? 
I have long, long yeah. time ago. Yeah. Right, right. So that's like the movie that everybody's watching right now. Gwyneth Paltrow's in it. Like my favorite scene is they're literally, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is like patient one, and they they cut her scalp off and they like bring her whole head down. It's pretty pretty amazing. But they they have at the end of the movie they have the the bat, you know, eating a banana, and then they flies over the wet market. It lands into the wet market by a pig. The pig eats the banana. And then, and there's Charlotte again, Charlotte's Web. The piglet is literally being served at a Macau casino event. And that's how this whole worldwide pandemic starts. Is that, is that? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, uh, Ebola, SARS, MERS, SARS and MERS are coronaviruses. uh, And I'm I'm not by any means a viral expert. Let me be straight on that. It's just, I have teams that have went in and harvested stuff uh, biologically, but uh, any of these viruses can, you know, basically come out at any time, then they have to sort of mutate. So it's contagious. And then there's, you know, the more lethal mutations like we have with, with, uh, with this one. Yeah. It's so incredibly frustrating. I mean, here we are in Massachusetts and, you know, we're doing all this social distancing, but it, it, the numbers are staying up. I mean, we're still seeing a lot of infection and we're still seeing, you know, a fair amount of death. So it's amazing to me, you know, I, I think this virus does what it wants to do, and we may have all these ideas of things that we're doing, but it probably is just happening on its own. And the whole idea of herd immunity really may be something that uh, that hopefully happens faster, especially if we can get a vaccine going. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Sweden. Uh, yeah, because they've they've taken they've actually done a traditional approach where they are simply uh, they didn't go with a lot of social distancing. They they. Uh, uh, did not close down elementary schools or preschools. They did close down the high schools and colleges. So right now their death rates higher, but they're they're going to hit herd immunity much faster than us. Traditionally in these these pandemics, it's about one third of the population actually gets affected to get herd immunity. You need about eighty percent. So it'll be it'll be interesting a year from now to see how Sweden. Um, uh, fared on this. Now Sweden is interesting. They they haven't jumped into artificial intelligence yet. But their ICUs are all interconnected. So within 30 minutes, they have real-time updates among the ICUs. So they're getting fairly accurate data. Um, the the organizations that could actually monitor this, there's actually a, a, a basically a military health uh, intelligence agency that's under the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And they have uh, very, very good data, probably better than than the World Health Organization or the CDC that monitors these developing things and monitors uh, what's going on as far as what type of um, protective gear we have in warehouses and things like that. I think the game changer after this is going to uh, probably be the use of AI to monitor these things. And I think AI would, uh, you could be used in the airport to look at that temperature variation among people. And then what do you have in, um, you know, in your warehouses? We had talked a little bit earlier about uh, 2005 when uh, President Bush and Michael Tertoff had developed a, a pandemic strategy that went from national government down to state, down to local, down to what hospitals should do, what and what business should do. We never really, we never really practiced it. So I think, I think there'll be some things that change after this one. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it seem awfully ridiculous that in this day and age, you literally, to get on an airplane, have to give somebody a piece of paper? You know, I mean, there are certain countries that do this really well, right? You know, Israel for in particular, you know, we're going to go to retinal scans, facial recognition. We're going to have to give up some of our, you know, liberal freedoms to be able to 
have the ability to move around in space. We need to identify the patients that are positive. We then need to be able to isolate them. And so that way, the rest of us can get outside and moving. So I think everything, you know, we talk about all the time in orthopedics, right? Telemedicine is going to stay. A physical therapy platform is going to stay. And we're not going to be sitting in a middle seat in an airplane, you know, anytime soon. So everybody's going to wind up having to change the way in which we do things. I know my my 21-year-old, you know, uh, he poor Mitch, he, he makes the NCAA tournament as a freshman playing for hockey at Endicott, and literally the NCAA tournament gets shut down the day after they make it. So, And now he has he, three years of junior hockey, goes to his freshman year, and then he only gets to go for three quarters of the year. So we got to figure out a way to get these kids back to school. You know, that's another thing. College-age college kids, there's very, very low death rate in that, in that age population. So I think you're absolutely right. AI, surveillance, testing, all of these things are going to allow us to sort of come through. So, so talk about, I mean, so, it, you know, George Bush put together a pretty good, you know, pandemic plan in 2005, didn't he? You know, we actually had N95 masks stored up. H1N1 came about in 2009 and the masks were depleted. Uh, there was a decision made. Well, we, we have a supply chain which would get us back masks within a month. However, that supply chain was China. So it, it was a, a catch-22 basically. Now you're you're you got some some cool stuff going on. I I listened to your your TEDx talk and uh you know you've got some some interesting things that are going on but uh, it, specifically sort of these matrix tools and and terrorism and school shootings and stuff. How does that play into the pandemic? Give us a little background on that. So uh actually uh back a- after the wound experiments that we did in in Thailand um got interested in looking at terrorism uh, through a, a, make, a matrix magnifying glass. And there's a guy named Haddon who developed a Haddon matrix. And he would give you an event and determine that that event was uh, pre-event, the event, and the post-event. And he did this for automotive trauma. And if, if you and I were to buy, a say, a, a, a 40 DeSoto and drive it from uh, Boston to Miami, and we wanted to improve our survivability, then we would we would put seatbelts in it. Because seatbelts did not exist before um, uh, the fifties basically. So Haddon recognized that there are uh, pre-event event and post-event things, and then layered them out in factors. So factor one would be engineering. So factor one, we could put a seatbelt in two, you could re-engineer your roads. So after World War II, the guys came back, they realized that the Germans had banked the roads so they could drive faster and safer. So you could have engineering aspects. Well, with the Haddon's matrix, you can all do, also do sociological aspects of it with uh, say drunk driving is your biggest cause of nighttime fatalities uh, you legislate drunk driving laws you get drunk drivers off so with a matrix you can go through each aspect engineering pharmaceutical uh, kind of what you did with with uh, opioid sparing um, type surgery you consciously or unconsciously went through a matrix and said, this makes sense. This makes sense. I've got empiric data to do this. So a matrix spells it out and lets you uh, drill down on each aspect so that you can make uh, clear decisions concerning efficacy and concerning safety. All right. So how does that apply to terrorism and the school shootings? So one thing, uh, if I set off a terrorism bomb, so here's one aspect of it. So if I set it off in a room or in a school bus, because of the percussive wave, I've got uh, probably 50% of the people will be killed just from the, the shockwave. If I set it up outside, only about 10% will be killed by the wave. A lot of people will be wounded, but mostly by small shrapnel. So what that 
what that lets me do is I know how to triage. I start looking down on if somebody has jugular venous distension, that person's going to die. And I, I'm not going to waste resources on it. So it starts letting the medical facilities prepare um, and it lets them treat. If you look at the Oklahoma City bombing, um, they did spectacular. The hospital system in Oklahoma did really, really good. They weren't training for terrorist activity. They trained for, for tornadoes or tornado corridor. So that type of training will will help you with efficiency, with safety, and um, getting your best result. We applied, uh, if, if you look at fire deaths in schools, elementary schools, high schools, there hasn't been one since the 1950s because this type of a matrix was applied to that. In uh, 2010, I was asked to work up the matrix for school shootings, and we actually uh, delivered this to uh, Homeland Security. So we looked at... Um, how, you know, was the, was the uh, child affected by trauma? Well, it turns out a lot of their moms were stressed in, in utero and it, it actually, the high cortisol levels shrunk the baby boy's hypothalamus. It's almost always uh, boys. And then we started looking at uh, social attachments. The kindergarten, first grade teachers recognize these kids are not making good social attachments. So there are places to intervene that would help. Um, also, so, you, so you're identifying the school shooters before they get to the point of being able to do this. To do that, and it was interesting. We had uh, some agents come in that uh, looked at, you know, in medicine we have sensitivity and we have specificity. So sensitivity, we would look at uh, a kid and go, look, he's listening to rock music, he is, or, or heavy metal music, he's wearing uh, long black coats. Is this kid at risk for being a school shooter? And it turns out there weren't such characteristics. So I go, what are the specific characteristics for them not being a school shooter? So we looked at at uh, things like, do they wear an earring? Do they have a tattoo? Are they the class clown? Are they a varsity athlete? Um, and we looked at those characteristics. And it turns out the kids that can express themselves are very, very unlikely to be a school shooter. Kids at the lower um, uh, autistic kids typically would not be a school shooter. The interesting thing we found out was that if, you're, if your kid is at a... Uh, public school, you have the school shootings, but at uh, schools that are affiliated with the religious order, like Catholic schools, have never had a school shooting. And and we looked at that, and even at Catholic schools, you have school bullying. So one of the the mistakes is they've said oh, school bullying is what makes these kids become school shooters. That's that's not necessarily true. So with these matrices, you can drill down on the data, start separating out fact from fiction. Look at what's efficacious. Look at what's safe. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's just a screwed up world right now. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, we didn't, there was no such thing as school shootings. I, I was never worried or concerned about that. But my kids, I mean, they're my, the younger ones are 17 year old twins and, and a 15 year old. They literally are worried about school shootings. It's like there was a period of time, it was almost like every month, where there was another shooting that was occurring. So, you know, I just, I mean, it's amazing that you've sort of helped to build this matrix. Has anybody done anything with it? Uh, we, we did develop a, or uh, deliver a talk to Homeland Security and Bruce Browner. Do you know Bruce? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Browner had asked me to take a look at it and it was right before I went to Afghanistan. So I got kind of tied up uh, uh, going away with that. So we've, we've had a paper uh, sitting there. We're going to uh, submit to uh uh, emergency medicine and homeland security. So we'll publish on this quite soon. But uh, I use the the um, um, type of philosophy that we we flew in 25 academicians 
and lay, set them down at one table and put the problem on the table and had everybody chew on it. So I did bring in a, a seal sniper who, uh, you know, they, they work on, on target acquisition, target selection. And this uh, individual went through the videos that uh, are out there on these school shootings. And he comes back, he goes, hey, if um, if a school shooter comes up to you and you've went to to school to pick up your 14 year old kid and you run into a school shooter who's 14, 15 and he looks you in the eyes. uh, Do you look him in the eye or not? What what would you do? Uh, I would probably holding a gun on you now. He's holding up. Look him in the eye. Yeah. See that? Those are the, the people that get murdered, actually. Really? So the Columbine data and the kids that looked away, it was, it was kind of a predator prey thing. So we're, we're teasing out those. Interesting. Those um, yeah, it is. It's, uh, we got about 100 years of data on this. And you're right, though. At one point, it was every single month uh, we've had a school shooting up till recently. Up till yeah. March was the first time in, I think, 10 years that there has been a school shooting. There was one mass shooting up in Canada, but we haven't heard anything at, at all since we've been uh, shut down. It's really one of just some of the craziness in our new world. Um, yeah, that that's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing. So, I think you're also uniquely qualified to talk about one other thing that we've been we've been discussing. We had Professor Paula Cannon on, who's a virologist from USC, and she was a little coy in her answer. But there's a lot of talk now that this virus was actually came out of a lab rather than just growing out of a wet market. What do you think? Okay. So uh, I have talked to some individuals that um, have, have looked at this. So I, I don't, I don't think this was weaponized. This is just my personal thing. I don't think it was weaponized, but actually uh, in, in Boston, did you know you have the same type of lab that they have in Wuhan? So there's this, this new emerging infectious disease laboratory called NIDIC that's in South Boston. They have coronavirus. They have the exact same viruses that we're talking about. <laughs> So, and I don't know if they even know it in the neighborhood, but uh, the interesting thing about the Wuhan market is patient zero was, was not at the, the market. So could it have come from the lab? Yeah. Was it weaponized? Probably not. But, so just a, a careless mistake by a lab guy yeah, who just. I mean, you, you, uh, you were the N95s. They're uncomfortable. Yeah. You were using them. So, yeah. and I have no uh, uh information on this one way or another, but you asked in my speculation, if it did come from the lab, it it was an accident and it's not a weaponized version. Uh, In Iceland, they recently characterized, they've already had 40 genetic shifts in this virus since it's come out of Wuhan. So the thing is shifting. Yeah. Fortunately, it's relatively stable though. I think from a vaccine standpoint, I think we're, uh, the the experts that we've talked to are pretty confident about that. You know, let's stick around Navy here a little bit because, you know, I, I we don't hear a lot out of Russia. You know, I've heard some stories that the the um, the number they're they're still having a significant amount of, of virus, but their their protocols for treatment are a little bit different. But one of the things that I've been sort of just toying around with, we got this big Navy ship out there. We kick our captain off because he's trying to take care of his people. It sounds like he got reinstated. I'm not sure, but you know, do you, do you get a sense that you know some of these more you know uh, aggressive countries would be looking at uh, the U.S. being overwhelmed by this virus and our military being uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But, uh, you know, sort of not at, at full capacity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, a- as a Navy captain, I was I was a little surprised. The information was leaked uh, to the press that, that there had been a, um, you know, epidemic on board. It's not the first time it's happened. Um, they've had 
you know, meningitis on board, H1N1 got on board. So I was a little surprised that that got leaked. I was not surprised he was relieved of command. I am surprised that they're going to reinstate him because once they go down that road, it's it's usually a done deal. So, um, I, you know, I have no intel on that matter, with the exception that I'm, I'm a former Navy officer. And uh, it's understandable why the um, the brass uh, relieved him for loss of confidence. Um, and these viruses do go through ships. It's not the first time. It won't be the last. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's just, the again, this craziness that's happening around us. All right, brother, it was awesome, really. It took us a while to get this thing going, man, but we finally got it done. I can't thank you enough. It was great. So I want to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser, Orthopedic Laser Centers. I want to remind everybody that you can listen to this podcast, the Ortho Show podcast, in all places that you listen to podcasts. Please don't forget to uh, subscribe as well. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.